0: Music
3: Welcome, Pastor Lawyer, with me, Mike Connors. And if this is the first time you've joined the show, welcome aboard. We are getting a few new listeners each week. But this show is usually in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. And right now it's very important not to go to court because probate is backed up in most of the counties in in New York City, and it's taking a lot more time to get a will probated than it used to be. So you need to plan right, especially in today's world and today's times. Now, the second part of the show, we usually talk about religion, politics, history, whatever. And we're going to talk a little bit, and of course, sometimes baseball. So we're going to touch a couple of bases today. We're going to talk about theology and baseball with uh, prof- Professor Paul Malnar, who's a professor at uh, theology at St. John's University. And, you know, we have some sad news, and it seems like we're doing this every week right now. But one of the friends of the show, Peggy Eason, she passed away suddenly and tragically this past week over the, you know, over, over the past weekend. And that that was a great shock because we saw Peggy uh, around November 12th or 13th, no, just a couple of, just a couple
4: of weeks back.
3: Yeah, November 12th we saw her, and she was doing a duet with Joe Piscopo at, uh, in Staten Island. So it was a shock to learn that, and that, that was the last time we saw her. Peggy. And for those of you don't remember her nickname, her or monica or whatever you might call it was, you know, the chocolate diva. But um, last time we saw her she was doing a tuet with, with Joe Piscopo a couple of weeks ago. And here she is, not a month later she's passed on and that was that's tragic and we're all like kinda hit by that pretty hard. But in any event, there was some good news of course this week. Gil Hodges is elected to the Hall of Fame.
5: And, you know,
3: at least At least on three or four different shows, we talked about the case for Gil Hodges making the Hall of Fame. Probably more than that, we talked about it with Faye Vincent. And Faye Vincent said that one of the reasons Gil Hodges was not in the Hall of Fame, he had some people, some enemies, you know, Ted Williams, who didn't like Gil Hodges because he was compared unfavorably to Gil Hodges when Gil Hodges left the Senators to manage the Mets. And then Earl Weaver, who Earl Weaver always begrudged the 1969 World Series Mets, because that kept him from winning three consecutive World Series. So, you know, Earl Weaver and and Ted Williams put a kibosh on it. I don't know what's been happening in the last 15 years or so. But I think it's it's important that Gil Hodges is in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, it's not just player stats, you know, because maybe if it was just playing stats, maybe Gil Hodges shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. But it's also supposed to be character. And everybody who knew Gil Hodges – he knew he had a strong and great character. And, you know, he was a World War II veteran, bronze star winner, uh, you know, which cost him a couple of years of his major league career. You know, he was in the minors at the time. He, was, he served in the, uh, in the military and Marines. But uh, that probably cost him a couple of years toward his development. And he would have accomplished more things. And when he retired, he had 370 home runs, which in today's post-steroid world is nothing but at the time he retired he had more home runs than any other hitter in the history of the National League and the National League was like 80 years old by the time he retired so and and he won three gold gloves and they didn't have gold gloves in the early part of his career and in some of the glo- gold gloves he won he was the gold glove first baseman for major leagues not they didn't just do it for National League and American League back then he was the gold glove winner for the for major league baseball and you know, I remember Casey Stengel once reading something about him where the, the traditional thing was if you have a runner on first and second, you bunt you bunt toward the third baseman. But Casey Stengel said, bunt toward the first baseman except if it's Gil Hodges. Because <laughs> he's the only first baseman at the time. Of course, Keith Fernandez, yeah, years later, came into play and could do the same thing. He's the only first baseman to come in and field the ball and throw to third base and throw the runner out. Um, and it's a good point. How many first basemen do you know today that if – you bunted the ball down the first base line. Would be able to charge in and, and you know throw to third base. Yes, Keith and Anders, we saw it. Met fans, we saw it all the time. So, you know, well, and, and then we're going to be talking about theology, which we talk about religion every once in a while, but very rarely do we talk about theology. And we're going to be talking theology with Professor, you know, Paul Molnar. In the meanwhile, if you want to learn about estate planning, Michael, where do you where do they find about estate planning with us? Okay.
6: Well, okay, if you want to catch one of our seminars, if you haven't been able to be get to one of those in person, then you can find that on YouTube at, just go to youtube.com, hit the search bar, and look for Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. That's Connors and Sullivan Video Seminar. First results you see right there should be a long video with Dad right up there to give you some of the ins and outs of about estate planning. Furthermore, if you have specific questions, you can always email us at askmikeconnors at com. That's askmikeconnors at com.
3: All right, well, we're going to take a short break, and after the break, we're going to be talking to Professor Molnar about theology and a little bit about baseball. Thanks for
7: joining us. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call. Now, so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones. Now, call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
1: Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503.
4: I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced
1: lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com.
2: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me.
5: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time. gradually quit going.
0: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
2: You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
7: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God
0: and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
2: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
0: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today.
1: Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
6: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. And and you know, a lot of times we talk about we start the show by saying the second part of the show we talk about politics, history, religion. Well, I think we're going to talk a little bit religion today. And welcome to our show, Paul Marner. How you doing, Paul?
8: Very good. How about
6: you? Fine. Now you're a professor at Saint John's. I am. And you have your doctorate in. Uh,
8: my doctorate is in contemporary systematic theology. Contemporary systemat- systematic, systematic the- theology. I, I, I once had Got me friend, there was there. A Presbyterian minister who used to come up. He was a Presbyterian observer at Vatican II, and he used to come up to preach at the Lafayette Avenue Church where I worked when I was getting my PhD as a business manager. And he said he was addressing a group of doctors and he was a systematic theologian and they couldn't get it out of their heads to think that he wasn't a systemic theologian yes (laughs) but systematic just means that we see the connections between all the doctrines so that if you if you speak about one doctrine correctly then it's likely that you'll carry that through the doctrine of creation then Christology and so on that way yeah
6: so you know we're looking over the, the chapter headings for your your newest book coming out and one of them was like, do Christians worship the same God as those from other Abrahamic faith religions? Let's say Islam and Judaism. And what what can you tell the audience, or what's your observation on that?
8: So uh, that's a uh, it's a very interesting topic, obviously, and. Uh-huh. Uh, um, so the way I, uh, address the topic is I, I, I say, well, in answer to the question, do they worship the same God? The answer obviously is yes. Since all three religions appeal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they do as a matter of fact. But when they work out their answers, they don't all agree on how to understand God, obviously. And so the question is, well, what is it that determines the truth uh, of what they say? And, uh, so uh, so what I do is I compare the views of Karl Barth, who argues that religion is our human capricious and arbitrary attempt to get to God, which means that even Christianity as a religion stands under God's judgment and grace, so that in itself it's not the true religion, so that Christians can stand over against the other two faiths and say, we have the truth. And you don't, that, that, because Christ, who is the grace of God, revealing God to us, is the one who was who the basis and fulfillment of of God's fulfillment of his own covenant promises made to Abraham and his descendants. So if the truth is found by grace and therefore in Christ, then I think Bart is basically correct, that you can't find the truth of any of those three religions in people's religious practices themselves in their religiousness, because it has to be found in God, who is the one th- that unites us all. And that's what he's done in Jesus Christ. So that's not under anyone's control. So so how does that work out? So I look at what a Muslim theologian says first in the chapter, and the Muslim theologian was well-educated in the doctrine of the Trinity, but uh, he says that what unites all three religions is their monotheism. That's a problem, though, and I think most people don't actually see that problem. Because Karl Barth argues, well, Christianity does not affirm every monothe- monotheism because we know God's oneness to be the oneness of the eternal trinity, and you can't dispense with that. But the Muslim theologian was very clever, and he, he knew Trinitarian doctrine, and he knew the tradition well, and he argued, well, theologians who follow Thomas Aquinas agree that even Aristotle and Plato knew God's oneness. So if... If Catholic theologians with their natural theology, which means that God can be known by reflecting on nature, history, and conscience, and not just on the basis of revelation, if they know God's oneness, then why can't we all agree uh, with, with Muslims, Jews, and Christians that God is ultimately one and not worry about the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity and just say that those are religious accretions brought about by Christian piety and they're not essential to the faith. The only problem is they're absolutely essential to the faith, because without the incarnation, Christians believe we wouldn't really know God as the eternal trinity. We wouldn't know the final truth about God. And so I look at the fact that that, um, what he ends up doing in the end is arguing for what Christians would call a modalistic view of God, that God is ultimately one and not three. And I say, well, that's not going to work for Christians. And in the end... Uh, the Jewish uh, theologian, the rabbi, he argued, well, we should really d- decide the truth of religion by people's religious practices. But Christians are not going to really accept that because it's not our religious practices that determine the truth. That would just be another form of self justification, I say in the book, uh, because all people have to live by grace. But grace means that God has come, really come, to disclose himself and bind all people together, including all Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Uh, in and through the reconciliation that it was accomplished in Jesus Christ. So ultimately, the truth is that all religions depend on God's grace and therefore on Jesus Christ in a very real sense, and we just can't make him over or, or claim that we're one on the basis of our monotheism because, as Bart actually says at one point, it was when, when Jewish monotheism reached its high point at the time of Jesus, they ended up rejecting their own Messiah in the name of God's oneness. So so monotheism is not the thing that unites us. It actually, in, in some key respects, divides us. So I argue in the book that does, I ask, does that mean that we should all be in conflict with each other? And I say, no, we should be working together, realizing that all of us depend upon God's grace and that it's out of our hands as Christians, Muslims, and Jews to determine the truth of Christianity, because only God does that and can do that. And he's done that by being faithful and fulfilling the covenant as as he has. And of course, there is a special relationship between Christians and and Jews because uh, uh, Jesus himself being a Jew, right, was fulfilling the Jewish co- covenant. And it's o- on that ground and on the basis of who he was and is uh, that, that we're already one. So I would argue, so Karl Barth actually does argue, and I would argue with him, uh, that, uh, that Israel, Judaism is not really another religion because without Judaism, Christianity wouldn't exist. So I would argue that Israel and the church are already one because of who Christ was and what he what he what he's doing now as the one who unites us. So Tom Torrance I have him cited in the in the chapter, uh, says that when he traveled to Israel and spoke with uh, 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 fellow Jews over there, uh, and they asked him, "Well, what about the the Holocaust? What about the suffering?" And he, and he said, "Well, the only way I can make sense of it as a Christian is by looking at Christ's suffering and death for all people uh, that he's done that even even." In the midst of of the horror of the Holocaust, and he says that Christians should be learning from Jews, and Jews should be working with Christians toward uh, communities of reconciliation. So I think that's really good, and that that means that we should be as Christians working with Muslims and Jews, and you, and it also means you don't have to make over Christianity to be engaging in interreligious dialogue, as some theologians like John Hick thinks. You know, because John Hick basically argued we have to be in interreligious dialogue, because he said. He found it embarrassing to believe that there was only one Savior, one revealer, one mediator. And so what he says, he says the incarnation really means that Christians were valuing Jesus and trying to get other people to value Jesus when they spoke about the Father and Son being consubstantial, and, and which is complete gibberish, right? Because if that's true, then Christianity is just total subjectivism, right? It's just Christians valuing Jesus and then getting other people to value him. And he says it, the incarnation did not refer to a metaphysical fact. But for Christians, it most certainly referred to the metaphysical fact that God himself became incarnate in Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. And me, I've probably spoken too long here, but... Well, let me uh, ask you something. How,
6: how is salvation in the minds of the believers obtained through Christianity, Judaism, and Islam,
8: through the through I would say through the grace of God, through through the revelation of God. So God can be revealed to anyone in any one of those religions in ways that are hidden to us, right? But that doesn't mean that I would. uh, That statement sounds very similar to what theologians recognize as Karl Rahner's theory of the anonymous Christian. Meaning by that he meant that any anyone who loves others and lives a good life from a Christian standpoint. Um, whether they're Christian or not, they're anonymous Christians. But there are plenty of Muslims who who, who do all those things that don't want to be, regard themselves as anonymous Christians, and that has to be respected. But the problem with that idea of anonymous Christianity is Rana was equating being a Christian with the way people behave. But that doesn't tell you anything about Christianity because atheists can be can love other people too, right? So, So to be a Christian means to accept the teaching of Jesus Christ, to accept him for who he is. So so uh, so the the so am I getting a little off your question, or am I?
6: Well, I think a little bit. But let's say, for the sake of argument, let's say the Christians. I am the way, the truth, and the light. Yes. So how does? does, Through me. How does a Muslim obtain salvation?
8: Oh, okay. Uh, uh, That's a, a very difficult question because. Uh, We don't, I'm going to answer it in a way that you might not be thrilled with, (laughs) but we don't obtain salvation. It's not something we can obtain, you Mm see? If salvation is God coming to us in the incarnation, which is what Christians believe to be true, right? Mm -hmm. Then salvation is is that act of God actually promising to save, uh, to fulfill his covenant promises, to be a covenant covenant partner of Israel, even though Israel through the Old Testament history was unfaithful and you, you had re- faithful remnants and so on and so forth, uh, but then God fulfilled that covenant in Jesus Christ. But if that's true, then salvation is a free act and gift of God, given, actualized in Christ, and then actualized in us through the Holy Spirit. So we don't obtain it, you know what I'm saying? There's no receive way we, it. Yeah, yeah, we can receive it as that gift, and we don't control that. So 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 my, the answer to that question is that Jesus Christ died for everyone including Muslims Jews and Christians. And if you bypass him then in fact since he is God acting in history for the whole human race then you're bypassing God himself. So that's the pro- that, and that's the problem of religion you see. If we use monotheism to unite Christians then then we're really using our idea of monotheism uh, to unite Christians, Jews, and Muslims, I should say, then you're using your idea of, of the oneness of God to do it, but your idea of oneness, the, God's oneness could then be in conflict with who God actually is as the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I think that's a good, clear indicator of, of what it means to rely solely on grace to know the answer to your question. Do you follow what I mean?
6: Right. Yeah. Now, here's a subject we talked about a little bit last week, but in the long run is everybody none of us deserve salvation but who's going to end up in
8: hell Uh, well if we thought we could determine that we'd be playing God and we should leave the room immediately correct (laughs) (laughs) so so uh, Because some theologians say nobody's going to end up in hell. Well, you're asking the question I ask in Chapter 7 of the book? Right, yes. uh, You're a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) T.F. Torrance and and David Bentley Hart in conversation on universalism. That's a hot topic. I first gave a lecture on Thomas F. Torrance and the problem of universalism in California, uh, at the American Academy of Religion at the Thomas F. Torrance Theological Fellowship some years ago. And then uh, that was published in the Scottish Journal of Theology. It got a lot of hits. People were really interested in it. But Torrance said, Universalism as a doctrine is a menace to the gospel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, he followed Karl Barth a little bit in this. He said, We can hope that all will be saved in the end. But if we try to make that determination, then we're doing something that's utterly impossible because it's God in the end. When Christ returns to judge the living and the dead who will determine who's saved and who's not. And and we can hope in light of the fact that when God raised him from the dead... raised him from the dead for the salvation of the entire human race even judas was actually included in that action right Mm -hmm. so so we can hope that god will save all in the end but the minute we make it a dogmatic statement he says we're rationalizing we're undercutting the true meaning of sin and the actual meaning of salvation by grace so 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 universalism as as a doctrine is a real problem now david bentley hart has a recent book where he says anybody with any common sense knows that the universalism is the only possible outcome so what I do is I set them into dialogue showing that where where Torrance would say well that kind of rationalist explanation is not going to work because you're substituting your universalist rationalization of Christianity in place of God actually coming again to judge the living and the dead in Christ you know so does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. Yeah, good, good. Okay. Wow, it actually made sense.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Generally, what do you, you know, we we can't learn or we can't know exactly what God means. So why why the study of
8: theology? Why the study of theology? Right. Uh, because unless we, uh, let, me, let me get completely off this and tell a little, uh, repeat a little section from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Have you ever read that? So he says in the book, God designed the human machine to run on himself. Uh, that means that even God can't give you a happiness apart from himself. So therefore, that's why you can't say you want to be happy and not bother about religion, because it's in theology that you know the truth of who God is, and can actually then know what it means to be in right relation with God. Because unless you're not Unless you know God and and the truth, and and the one who gives eternal life, Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, you're not really going to know the the true meaning of human life, and and what it means to live eternally, and 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 uh, what it means to talk about all of these these important issues. So theology is extraordinary when it's done well. Of course, is extremely important, right? Because it, it helps you distinguish truth from falsity. Torrance once said against the the subjectivists of his day, like Paul Tillich, right? Who basically said, he did say in his book, The Shaking of the Foundations, if you don't like the traditional meaning of the word God, translate it. And speak of the depths of your life. (laughs) Or you got it? Or of what you take seriously as of ultimate concern. What's the problem? Torrance uh, assailed that because truth does not come from us in the first place. So you can talk about your ultimate ter- concerns until you turn green, and if you do, you should probably call EMS, right? But, but, uh, but you're never going to say a word about God. And he says, theologian, he wants to do scientific theology, which means we allow the object, the unique object of Christian faith, to determine the truth of of our thinking. And I, I, I agree with that. And but when you know the unique object of faith, uh, or as Torrance would say. When you allow yourself to think from a center in god as god truly is and has come to us uh then you can then you can see and understand the truth of who god is who we are and the meaning of life so so theology is extraordinarily important it's very and you see it even in the quarrels about the truth of religion and people fighting over religion and becoming fanatics over religion Uh, obviously the answer to the question of truth is is paramount in people's lives. And they often get really confused thinking about that because they don't allow the truth to be the truth. They think they can discover it within themselves and then sort of make it up. I'll, I'll give one other example if I can, is that okay? Uh, one of the big disagreements in the book between Karl Rahner, the Catholic theologian and someone like Carl Barth or, or Thomas Torrance, the greatest English speaking theologian of the 20th century is over how we know God. So Rana says, in his writings, that that all conceptions of God come from the experience of the nameless. And, of course, that's utterly untrue, because the Christian concept of God comes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who has revealed God to us, and the knowledge of his Father. And I say that following St. Athanasius in the 4th century, who said it is more godly and more accurate for Christians to think of the Father through the Son than to think of God from the things he has made as the Arians did, as the unoriginate, the one without origin. Does that make sense to you? So, so that's a killer really in, in a way, right? Because I say to my students in class, they say, have you ever been to a baptism? Uh, it, oh, yes, yes. I said, did you ever hear the priest or the minister say, I baptize you in the name of the nameless? <laughs> 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 you follow me? It's yes, There's a, it's a yes. big problem there. <laughs>
6: One last comment before we change the subject or whatever. But how do you feel about people, you know, combining politics and religion?
8: Yes, interesting question. So uh, I think you shouldn't comp- combine politics and religion. Politics is important; it has its place. Um, but uh, liberation theology is often called political theology, right? Right. And uh, for for. Some more extreme versions of liberation theology, I have one example in my book of a theologian who says he wants to do, engage in doing before knowing, which is a risky business, right? It's like engaging in um, um, speaking before you think, and that sort of thing. But uh, what he argues is we don't have to worry about whether Jesus is unique or not. If we work together with other people to try to create a better world, the true image of Jesus will come through. So his image of Jesus on that basis was <laughs> that Jesus is one savior among others, and it would be an embarrassment to think that he was the only savior of the world, which he's perfectly perfectly free to believe in. The only problem is that has absolutely nothing to do with with the faith that unites all Christians, Catholics, and Protestants, the Nicene Creed. And and so so the problem is this: if 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 politics, if you think that religion or theology, I would rather talk about the. Uh, the reason, I I'll Let me just make a distinction that Torrance makes and then I make in one of the chapters in the book. Torrance says he wants to do in his book Theological Science, one of the really great books, he says he wants to do a philosophy of theology and not a philosophy of religion because he says if you do a philosophy of religion, then a religious agenda always comes to the fore as the thing that determines truth and he doesn't want any part of that because if you're doing a philosophy of theology then it's 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 the God who has come to us in the incarnation who determines the truth in all our thinking. Through the now, obviously, since Christ is dead and risen, ascended and coming again, now that takes place through the Holy Spirit uniting us to Him in faith. So He would argue, right? So um, so if if you don't see that and you think that theology is uh, should serve politics, then what you're going to do is. You, you're, going to, you're going to change your concepts of God, of grace, of salvation, depending on your relig- social, religious, and political agenda. And that's what I oppose in the book, strongly, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it, 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 uh, who God is comes from God to us. It doesn't come from our practice of fighting against oppression, uh, 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 where we can all agree that we should work together and then come up with an the concept of God that will unite us, because then that's us using God to attain a political end. That's a disaster, in my view, because the kingdom of God is, has been established in Jesus Christ, and us working for the kingdom of God on earth should be uh, that we are wor- working in faithfulness to the God revealed in Jesus Christ, and leaving it to Him to d- to shape world events in that sense. Because God watches providentially over us, and we don't we don't determine the world events. And, uh, I don't know if that answers your question Ru. what's the
6: name of your book and when does it come out
8: okay so my book is the title is freedom the necessity and the knowledge of God in conversation with Karl Barth the f- most famous theologian of the 20th century and Pope Paul the sixth I might add referred to Karl Barth as the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas which is
6: quite a company pretty good company
8: <laughs> pretty good company so, so it's in conversation with Karl Barth and Thomas F. Torrance who was uh, by all accounts and I agree with this, I say this in my book on Torrance, that he was the greatest English-speaking theologian of the 20th century, and I had the privilege to meet him. His son, Ian, who I worked with for 26 years on the Scottish Journal of Theology, I'm one of their consulting editors, his son Ian got him to come to St. John's to speak in 1997, and so I really got to know him. And then when I was giving some lectures at at the University of St Andrews and at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, I visited him in his house, and we really became good friends. And he wrote me many letters, and we exchanged communication and papers. And I read all his writings. He's he's, he's written. I think he wrote uh, hundreds of articles before he retired, and another several hundred after he retired, and seven, uh, at least thirty thirty books. And I read I read most ever, all of his material, and he's. I do think he's one of the great theologians of the 20th century. So 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 basically the cha- the chat I did there are eight chapters one discussing why you can't think of God's relation with the world in such a way that you make that you say creation is necessary to God because God is love because it's a free active God and that's a hot live issue right now among theologians then I compare Barth and theologian Walter Kasper and Elizabeth Johnson in the second chapter and if you don't mind it's just I'll do it okay. quick uh, then I have Barth uh call uh, by thomas torrance and the new natural theology which is another interesting topic then i have a chapter on comparing tf torrance and Karl ronner on what torrance calls non-conceptual knowledge of god then i have a chapter on liberation theology and then language for god arguing that you don't need to change the language for god for women to have equality in the church because christ has already died for the sins of the world overcoming all that leads to patriarchalism, so you don't need to change God for that. And we can't do it anyway, since God alone defines who God is. And then I do the one on universalism, and the one and the one asking the question, do Christians worship the same God as those of the other Abrahamic faiths? So that's coming out on December 30th.
6: December 30th, well, that's the day after tomorrow, almost. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty
8: nearly, right? Yeah. And you know what? The editor told me, I Skyped with her last Friday. She said, T- TNT Clark releases all their books on a Thursday. And I, silly, silly, and Thursday, silly yeah. I never asked, exactly why i have to find out why that is because that's pretty weird but she i she said she was having her assistant send me some copies that i hope to bring you a copy today but they didn't come yet but when they come i'll give you a copy okay
6: now i'm going to change the subject i'm reminded of a conversation we once had at the union league club a few years ago and most of the audience knows the people involved uh we had kevin mccullough who's got a show on the station and many of the stations in salem network uh father paul who's a missionary from the middle east And Father Charlie, who was a redemptorist, who was stationed here in Brooklyn one time. So Kevin McCullough and Father Paul were going over theology for about 45 minutes, back and forth, back and forth. And then Father Charlie eventually goes over and says, why don't you guys change the subject and talk about something important? And Father Paul says, like what? Baseball.
8: <laughs> I love that.
6: That's really important. Right. And Father Paul said I don't know anything about baseball. And so Father Charlie said it was very it's very simple. I'll explain it to you. You know, you're playing soccer, you attack this goal and you defend that goal. Baseball's different.
8: <laughs> so, Just a wee bit. <laughs> right.
6: Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame. Fabulous. Yes. You know, we're talking about that. You said some people were praying for that?
8: I think I saw a story in the tablet maybe last week, uh-huh. where, where it said that people were praying for Gil Hodges to get into the Hall of Fame. So so the, the, I did not realize that that was coming up for a vote this week. I didn't either. It just yeah.
6: hit me. You know, I heard it on the, the radio day. this Same morning. Same here, yeah. Where, you know, the show's Dave, yeah. by the way. For, but, you know, I think that's such a great thing for Brooklyn, not that there are that many people who remember Gil
8: Hodges. Do you remember uh, pl- seeing Gil Hodges play in the Dodgers? I do. I remember his number 14. I remember him hanging around first base there, you know, <laughs> hovering around first base. Yeah, he won. And and then I remember when he managed the Mets, of course, you know?
6: Yeah. But he won three cold gloves. And the thing is, the gold glove only came up later in his career. So who knows how many he would have won. And he won gold gloves when it was the gold glove for the best position player in both leagues. Wow. You know, so, I mean, people forget about it. You know, a lot of times defensive players... I think sometimes get overlooked in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Keith Hernandez, I think, belongs in the Hall of Fame.
8: I, for, but and he wasn't just defensively great; he could, he could hit too.
6: Yeah. yeah we're talking about Hodges or both of them yeah, 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 but, but I mean, Hodges would, would be in the leaders of RBIs for about 10 straight years
8: yeah oh no he belongs in the Hall of Fame yeah and maybe he belongs in the Hall of Fame from bringing the Mets to the World Series in 1969
6: well, I always felt that the combination you know like
8: that was a monumental event the greatest the city, managerial
6: right? yes. accomplishment of, of, of all, all time. time of all time <laughs> yes. he took
8: them from, from from a manager saying can anybody here play this game yeah. you know which they couldn't clearly <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, uh, to that so that's pretty good and in the space for how many, not that many years, really, you know. Right. They started in 62, seven mm-hmm. years later to get the World Series. That's not bad. Yeah. And and, the, and then he, you said, I think you said in a previous conversation that Earl Weaver was not happy. that the That's mistake. what Faye
6: Vincent said on the show a couple of years ago, that Earl Weaver and Ted Williams were two of the guys who blocked Gil Hodges from being in the Hall of Fame because of petty jealousies and things like yeah. that.
8: Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. And then Earl Weaver didn't didn't like Gil Hodges because he, the, beat he beat him in the 69 World, World Series. series.
6: Because remember, if, if they had won that World Series, they would have won three straight World Series. Baltimore? Baltimore, because oh. they beat the Pirates and the Reds, I think.
8: So they were the a genuine season. underdog in that series,
6: the Mets. The Mets were definitely underdogs yeah. in that. Yeah, there's no question about it. Nobody it was, even thought that. Obviously,
8: God's will that they won. I'm
6: glad those people were playing for Gil You know, it reminds yeah. me of a story that when Gil Hodges yeah. was, was in a slump, way back when in the fifties, one priest gave a sermon, said, I'm not gonna give a sermon this summer day, just go home and pray that Gil Hodges gets out of his slump. <laughs>
0: That's and, good.
6: And then you know, he got he got hot and he started hitting again. And then Carl Erskine said, Boy, you Catholics have a pretty good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and Carl Erskine used to live right up the the street here when he was in uh Brooklyn. Oh I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he lived wow. on yeah, he lived in Bay Ridge. Oh, yeah, he was another guest on our show, oh, I hope. He's still alive. Yeah. Uh, wow, He's 90-some-odd years old, but he, wow. he enjoyed his time in Bay Ridge. He enjoyed his time in Brooklyn. He spent 10 years in Brooklyn. He spent two years with the L.A. Dodgers, and uh, mm. it was the only team he ever played for.
8: So and he played for them in Brooklyn and then in L.A. He had two
6: years yeah. in the L.A. And yeah. the L.A. was, you know, toward the end of his career, he was more My of a father
8: once picture. took me to Ebbets Field because we were living on Long Island at the time. But uh, when I was in the fifth grade... My father got me out of school to go to the World Series. And guess what game I went to? I went to Larson's Perfect Game. Oh, wow. What could be more boring, though, for a kid? Right, to right. Especially some runs, there, and you know? especially the, the Dodgers. I'm watching this hit. stuff. I said, who cares? You they know? didn't even get a walk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, um, but I still have the ticket stub from that. Can you believe it? Well, that's part of history. That's part of history. Yeah. And I, I don't know how old you would be in the fifth grade. I, uh, but I wasn't very old, I guess. I don't, how old are you in the fifth grade? I have no idea. Fifteen? Yeah. No. no Twelve? Fifth, fifth
6: grade would be, what, 10? ten? Ten.
8: Ten. Oh, I was only yeah. 10. ten. Yep. So It's a good thing somebody remembers these things. <laughs>
6: <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, thank you for stopping by and, and talking religion and a little bit of baseball. Yes. Minnie Minoso made the Hall of Fame, too, and I'm very happy to hear That's about wonderful. that. That's wonderful. And, you know, because I, I I think he was, you know, you, you some sometimes you fall through the cracks. Like, he Started his career a little bit late because of the color barrier, mm-hmm. and he didn't get all the uh, recognition he deserved as a truly great well, he ball was
8: player. Really, he was a great ball player, no question yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah,
6: yeah. I mean, any guy had the career over 30 that he had was obviously a yeah, was, great ball player. And absolutely. But Fowler, Buck O'Neill from the Negro Leagues, um, you know, they made it too Antonio Tony Oliva, I think that's uh, – uh, That's right. I think that they. Tim Carr was good. Yeah, so, I th- I think they corrected some mistakes. He was with D-
8: Detroit, recently. right? He was with time. a lot of people. He yeah. was with
6: the Yankees. He was with the um, Minnesota, whatever. But he won a lot of games. He won over two hundred and eighty games, and a very steady pitcher, not spectacular, but you know. But he accumulated the he, wins, you know. He accumulated the wins, yeah, and I mean that's the important part about baseball: winning the games. I mean today it's not; it's WAR no. or yeah. whatever. Well,
8: obviously, or Jacob Degrom wouldn't have won the Cy Young award, <laughs> yeah, right? Right. right. Yeah, I think he had probably the lowest win record ever with yeah. the Cy Young. So, but uh, it used to be you had to win twenty games to be a Cy but Young. But now award you have winner. to predict. Is he going to be healthy this year <laughs> with the with that one-two combination on I ne- the Mets I now? I never
6: predict because I'm always disappointed.
8: Uh, well, that's because you're a Mets fan. Right, it's right. It's endemic.
6: <laughs> right. It just
8: happens. Something's <laughs> going to go
6: wrong. Um, Somebody's going to get hurt. But so it's still fun for the time being.
8: It is. It is. Well, yeah. we, we, we're we looking forward to something good this year. Right. right. Max Scherzer and, and yeah, yeah. Jacob we, DeGrom uh, and Yeah. I mean, two, two tough opponents. All right.
6: Let's go Mets. Paul, thank you for being on the show.
5: Thank you. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With Saint Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove christianity from the middle east but if we will help them every single day not just to feed them or clothing it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized that we love them there are cousins sisters there are roots so saint francis in beirut it's all about helping christians and you can be part
2: of that help too
6: if you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York,
7: 10002. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call. Call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family make the call now eight 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 nine four three two six four six, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash f once again call eight 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 nine four three two six four six, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement
1: frank milia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi,
6: everybody.
3: And my son, Michael.
6: Hello, everyone.
3: All right, so the good news: past week, Gil Hodges was elected to the Hall of Fame. And, you know, some of the other guys I think, you, you know, deserved Hall of Fame election. Uh, Tony Oliva, Minnie Minoso, Jim Cott. I think those guys all really deserved. Jim Cott, I never understood why he didn't get more votes. You know, he wasn't, you know, a spectacular pitcher but he pitched an awfully long time and won a lot of major league games. And I don't think we're ever gonna see anybody win, you know, two hundred and eighty some odd games again. And how many Hall of Famers did he win more games then? So I, I really do believe that Jim Cott deserved election to Hall of Fame. Tony Oliva was a batting title champion. And he played in the in the late in the sixties where batting averages weren't too high, so maybe his career was a little forgotten. And Minnie Minoso's career was kind of Cut off too because combination of different events. He didn't really get to play every day as a major leaguer till he was about 30, and his you know the combination of the color line and the way baseball was in World War II and so forth. So all of them I guess deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But Fowler I really don't know much about except he was an African American uh, baseball player, professional baseball player in the 1870s and 80s. And Buck O'Neill was. And as a pioneer. I know he's a coach for years and years with the Chicago Cubs when the color line was broken. But congratulations to all of them or their families. And, you know, good luck. You know, and there will always be Hall of Famers now, Gil Hodges. Always going to say Hall of Famer, Gil Hodges. Now, the sad part of this week, again, we lost Peggy Eason. Uh, you know, her, like a moniker nickname was the Chocolate Diva. And Joe Piscopo loved her, and you know more than a few times we saw Joe and, and Peggy um, play duets together. And, and but she was a great personality, an independent personality. She was blind, accomplished an awful lot in her life and career. And I remember she she thanked the Dominican Sisters when she was a girl to encourage her in music and encourage her, you know, singing, and that she could accomplish something even though she was blind. And and again, the last time we saw her was at the that Staten Island. She did a duet with Joe Piscopo. So rest in peace.
4: Beth, do you have a, a comment on that? I, I do. She a beautiful voice, um, but more importantly, just a beautiful soul. Peggy was one of those people who, if somebody needed someone to sing for a fundraiser, um, when when we when we went to see her, you know, she of course, you know, said. Reckon, although she couldn't see, she spoke about everybody in the audience that she knew and loved, and um, she's just one of those people who, when you leave her at the end of the day, wherever, whatever you've been with her, you just you you think, oh my goodness, I I need to be more like Peggy. I miss her so much. I will miss her. I mean, it, it was a shock. So prayers for. A, a dear precious soul the world has lost someone so 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 wonderful
3: all right peggy easton rest in peace
6: and we'll be closing today with one of her songs so you know rest in peace we all miss you
4: we love you peggy bye-bye
2: and now would you please welcome to the stage peggy Eason?
5: help me welcome on the piano, Mr. Emmy Award winner and Grammy Award winner, my lovely music director, Mr. John McDaniel. (laughs) Can you see me, John? Did they turn on the lights? Okay. Well, hello there, good old friend of mine. You've been reaching for yourself for such a long time. There's so much to say, no need to explain, just an open door for you to come in from the rain, the dazzle of a flame, the glory of a rain. Got To get what you want Before what you got is gone You gotta grab for that ring While you're on that ride How long does that ride go on? If you know anything about Vermont Lakes, you know at 9 a.m. in the morning, that water is cold. I didn't want to put my head in the water because I was afraid I was going to drown. You know. All of my friends were... Sailing, They were canoeing and boating, and uh, I was on the shore. Maybe you could show me how to let go. Lower my guard. Learn to be free. Maybe if you whistle, whistle for me. I walked into my guidance counselor's office one day at request. I sit down, and he tells me, Miss Eason, we don't feel that you're college material. You're going to encounter much difficulty. And I remember saying that day, I'll show them all. I'll let them wash my dust. I'm on my way, and they'll be held to pay to top or bust. Someday I'll win. Someday they'll cry. I picture curly heads
2: and one
5: by one I count them as they slumber in their beds. So when you're worried and you can't sleep just count your blessings instead of sheep and you'll fall asleep
2: Hey, Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding
1: pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC.